0: Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 769th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today, in our podcast, we have someone who believes in changing the landscape one seed at a time. We're talking with returning guest Bevan Cohen about seeds and weeds. Bevan is an award-winning author, herbalist, owner of Small House Farm, and host of the popular Seeds and Weeds podcast. Bevan offers workshops and lectures across the country on the benefits of living closer to the land through seeds, herbs, and locally grown food. He is a food and garden writer whose work has appeared in numerous publications, including Mother Earth News, Modern Farmer Magazine, and Baker Creek Heirloom Seed Catalog. How cool is that? Bevan is the author or editor of more than 10 books, including The Artisan Herbalist and Saving Our Seeds. Welcome back to the show today. Bevan, are you ready to rock? I'm ready to do it, Greg. Awesome. So we got to meet you in podcast episode 685 last summer. Can you bring us up to speed on what's been happening with you since?
1: There's been a lot happening here, Greg, for sure. One of the things you mentioned already is in January, we launched the new Seeds and Weeds podcast. And I got to tell you this. Oh yeah. It is the most fun thing that I get to do every week. I absolutely love it. It got started years ago. I do a lot of writing. I, and for Modern Farmer Magazine, I started writing these profiles. They call them Meet the Farmer, where yep. we get to sit down and introduce these different farmers and the different work that they're doing in different parts of the country and stuff. And it was a cool way to just showcase these stories. Mm-hmm. And I thought, it's nice hearing my voice to showcase these stories, but wouldn't it be better to let them tell the stories themselves? So that's how we started this thing. There's short 15 to 20 minute episodes where we have farmers and gardeners, foragers and herbalists and all these different groovy plant people come on the show and tell their story and tell us all these cool things that they're doing with plants to hopefully get other people inspired to try those things too. As a matter of fact, you were on the show not too long ago, my friend.
0: I was and it was a blast. We had a
1: great time. Absolutely. And then on top of that, what have I been doing? With Timber Press, we just recently launched a series of books. It's part of this Grow Great Vegetable series that they've been Uh putting out. They're state-by-state guides for gardening across the U.S. So they brought me on board to do the ones here in my local region. So we did Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin, Indiana. Illinois, Grow Great Vegetables in all of those different states. So those just came out in spring of 2023. And I have been on the road ever since out there promoting these books. It's been a busy time. Yeah, it's been pretty wild, man. But it's super cool because we get to go to all these different places and meet all these people. And even though we're talking about the same things, we're talking about seeds, gardening, local food. In each one of these areas, it's different. It's different people, different seeds, different food. So it's been really exciting to get to hang out with these folks. And not only am I trying to teach them about gardening, but you know how it is. When you go to teach, you learn so much stuff too, right? Yeah,
0: it sounds like we're both lifelong learners. I I won't ever stop. Oh, there's so much to learn. You'll never learn at all. And here's what happened for me in the past year and a half. I grew food in Phoenix, Arizona for 47 years. And I transported myself 1900 miles to Asheville, north carolina and know nothing about gardening (laughs) you got to start over from scratch right it's completely different starting over from scratch i had my friend zach brooks from arizona worm farm i was on the phone with him a few months ago and he said greg don't forget your first garden is your worst garden
1: that's good advice Uh,
0: Yeah, it was. And oh, yeah, because, yeah, I didn't do well. Our garden this year is 30% better than last year's. That's awesome. And that's
1: important advice, right? That your first garden is your worst garden. And on this tour promoting this book, the Grow Great Vegetables books are geared towards beginner gardeners, most certainly. But there's lots Mm -hmm. of stuff in there for folks that have been gardening for a long time because there's always new things to learn. And I think that's the lesson that we always learn in the garden. There's something new to learn each season. And we have to learn how to embrace failure because it's bound to happen. I think both you and I asked that question in our podcast about a failure, don't we? We do. That's yup, up. And I, th- I love that question so much because it really gets people thinking, even we'll bring the most experienced gardeners on the shows and then ask them that question. And they say, how do I pick one? How do you only pick one? They always say that there's so many things that we all fail at no matter how experienced we are. So I think that's
0: part of the beauty of gardening is it's humbling in a way. Oh, big time. Big time. And last year we had these beautiful tomato plants and some kind of blight came in right as they started producing. And Boom, they were gone. And it was because we were overwatering them, not putting mm. too much water on them. We were watering them from the top and it was getting on the leaves and the splatter. And in Phoenix, there's no such thing.
1: <laughs> right,
0: right, right. Yeah. So you're learning all over from scratch for sure. Exactly, exactly. And so let's talk about your podcast. Is it, a, how often does it come out and what inspired you to do it?
1: It comes out every two weeks. So it's every other week on a Wednesday, we drop the new episode. And I really was inspired. I just, I love to share other people's stories. And I mm. found through writing these articles for these magazines and stuff where I would have to interview folks and interpret what they said and that sort of thing, which is fun. And I enjoy doing that, putting my own spin on things, but it was just really nice to, let these folks just tell their own stories to really nudge them along a little bit like you have to do when you're doing an interview, but Mm -hmm. letting them, giving them that space to really just share whatever's on their mind. And I find that it's literally the most fun thing that I get to do every week is sitting down with these folks. I've met people from all over the place, all sorts of different folks, horticulturists and foragers and mushroom farmers and people that we get to have on the show. So I'm new stuff out there working on shows and our listeners they're having this opportunity to learn from all these experts from all over the country it is such a blast now i know why
0: you've been doing it for so long greg (laughs) right well it's the most it's the most fun thing because we get to we get to meet with really cool people doing really cool stuff (laughs) (laughs) Stuff, yeah and you know larry santoyo permaculture teacher larry santoyo yes i do He's out of California, longtime acquaintance of mine. I've probably known Larry for 25 years. And his piece of advice for people is go out in the world and do epic shit. Right.
1: You got to get out there and do something. What are we going to do? Just sit here all day? Go do something fun. So you've been doing this a while. Doing it a while. We've been here at Small House Farm for more than 10 years now. We've been working in this spot. And you know, as much as we have learned the land and learned how to work with it and sometimes get out of our own way and let mother nature do her thing, we always get humbled and learn new lessons. And it's been so nice. I've never been in one spot for so long ever in my life. Yeah. So it's really cool to have a chance to just settle into an area and really get to feel what it's all about here. Where we're at in Small House, we're tucked away on the edge of some woods. Very, There's 1,100 acres of forest across the street. Wow. Um, yeah, it's a beautiful place, but it's definitely different when I go to visit my friends eh, 25 minutes from here that are in town and their gardens. It's a very different scenario than what I'm working with out here. Yeah. I'm blessed to have this space and have this
0: time to be here for sure. Nice. And have you noticed, the reason I asked you the longevity one is, what I notice is every time there is a cultural happening like the market turned down in 2008 and 2009 and COVID people's interest in this stuff spikes. Do you see that? Oh yeah, man. Absolutely.
1: COVID's a great example of that. I do a lot of travel and education. It's, it's a big part of what we do here at small house. I'm on the road a lot to visit a lot of different communities to talk to them about gardening. And when COVID hit, what happened for many people, I was pretty much out of work. Everything I had 45 gigs cancel in a matter of 24 hours. Wow. Yeah, it was heavy. (laughs) It was heavy. But almost at the exact same time, we sell seeds on our website. We grow a lot of seeds, heirloom, fruits and vegetable seeds here on our farm that we offer through the Small House Farm website. And that spike of interest in gardening, and it came from a lot of different places. Some people were really nervous about the food supply. Some people just had a lot of extra time at home, whatever it might've been. There was a huge spike in the interest in gardening and a huge spike in sales on our website. And thank goodness for that because it floated us through 2020 because other than that, I was out of work, man. We were out of business is what was going to happen. We had that was
0: a blessing for sure. We had Lizzie from Lizzie and the Triggerman. She's a musician out of LA Okay, on, on the podcast, maybe a year or so ago. And her musical gigs all got canceled so she started a garden So right. we had her come on and for her garden experience and that was an extraordinary experience for her and for me actually so that was yeah that's cool.
1: cool it's neat to see people coming back to the garden I, I consider it like the silver lining of, of these challenges that we see in the world the market turn and COVID and that sort of thing to get people back out into their gardens or getting them out into the gardens for the very first First time. time. Yeah, it's so cool to see it. And what I love is all these people that came to the garden, whatever brought them there, so many of them stayed. They stayed there, even though the world got back to normal and we could do other things. They stayed out in the garden because they realized just how awesome it is out
0: there. Yeah, exactly. All right, here's a question for you. I interviewed somebody yesterday and I've interviewed thousands of people. And that's my gig. I don't get on the road, but I get people on Zoom and like this. And this person that I was interviewing yesterday, I'm not going to say who it was. I was actually nervous interviewing this person. And that in the 750 episodes of the Urban Farm podcast, I can think of two other times that's happened. Wow. Um, For me, that's an indication of how much I respect and look up to what they do. Not that I don't respect and look up to everybody that I interview. Otherwise, they wouldn't be on the podcast. But sure. There was a certain magic sparkle there. Have you had that experience yet where you've actually been a little bit nervous interviewing somebody?
1: Oh, yeah. Even just the very first interviews that we did. And when we got started, I had friends of mine come on the show. I had Jeff Quatron from New Jersey come on to talk about tomatoes. We had Joseph Lofthouse come on. These are friends of mine that I've talked to hundreds of times. And I was still nervous about trying to put together a show around the conversation that we're going to have because the learning curve, I just wasn't sure what I was doing. So the, I had the nerves with that. Having you on the show when you were on, that gave me a little bit of nerves, to be honest with you, because you're a very experienced podcaster and I'm very new at what I'm doing. So, you know, there's that little bit of nerves that come with that. But for the most part, not really, because I figure
0: if it doesn't go well, I just don't have to air it. You know what? I've actually had that happen a couple of times. Oh, really? Yeah. We did some interviews and it was like, yeah, no, that one's not going out. That happens occasionally. Yeah, I've had
1: one that we weren't able to air and it wasn't because of any reason aside from the audio quality. Um, I was still new at at, at editing the audio and so we were struggling with the audio quality on that one. And I felt that the conversation was so good and I respect the person so much that was on the show. I thought, oh, we need to do something better than that. So we pitched it. We're going to revisit and have her back on the show another time. So far, so good. It's been so much fun to do because again, like I said, I get to, to... put these people up on a bit of a platform and share their stories and share their experience and knowledge with the world. But I learned so much. We had a gentleman on that wrote a book called Gardening for Moths. And first off, I had never even considered the idea of gardening for moths, gardening through the point of view of attracting moths into your garden. Wow. Um, Yeah, it was way cool. So there was like the pollination that some moths might do, but a lot of it was creating habitats to preserve these different moths. And in the book, He had photographed all of these moths that come out at night, hundreds of different moths, gorgeous. It was unreal. Unlike anything I've ever experienced in my life. And I never would have even had this opportunity to see the pictures or learn about moths or any of that if it wasn't for the podcast. So in a way, it's a selfish thing that I get to do it.
0: Absolutely. So there's something that happened. There's a hyper local thing that you learned on a recent trip.
1: Yeah, man. And this has been it's stuck with me. So my wife Heather and I just got back recently from a trip. We went to southern France. We flew into Nice and then we went, took a train over into Italy. Wow. Um, Yeah, yeah, it was
0: very cool. I love
1: Italy. I've been there before. Gorgeous. So you're very familiar with what I'm going to talk about here. And I was familiar with this coming into it, but to go there, this was my first time heading into this area of the world and to seeing it in action, it just The food is so hyper local in Italy and in France, like to the point where it's regulated by the government, the DOP certification, it's AOP in France, but to be certified local in these areas. So we went to Liguria, which is the region in Northwest France, right along the Mediterranean Sea on the Riviera. And they had, we went to a market and they had 12 to 20 different cheeses, all Ligurian. These are cheeses made right here in this region. And exclusively, those were the only cheeses that they had. Wow, wow! right? Here in the States, we're really into local food. People are getting into it. People want to have local food. But this is to the extreme. This is just the way that it is. And although here we're trying to move into something local, there it's just the way that it is. This is how it is. This is what the people expect. And so the carbon footprint on this food is less. The packaging on this food is less. This is the freshest, most wonderful food. It's tied into a place and a culture and a people. It's astounding. It boggled my mind how local everything there was. We ate, trofie, was the pasta from Liguria. It's a specific pasta shape right from that city with pesto, which they invented in that city. Wow. Yeah. It's amazing to see that. And I love that we are trying to be more local here in the United States absolutely necessary to have a sustainable food system is to tune into this locality of place and food but we're working backwards right now because early in the american food system when we started to industrialize we went big as big as we could go and yep. we we're already seeing covid was a great example of how difficult and fragile a food system like that can be right so we got to work backwards into this local food system. So getting people out in the gardens, getting people growing and eating and supporting local farmers, all this sort of stuff is some of the most important things that we can do. And I'm telling you what, Greg, that food in Italy, perfecto, right? It's, oh my gosh. Oh yeah. So good. And everybody's so proud of it. I met a guy that had a little corner stand. He had, he'd do focaccia, which was invented in that town, the style of bread. And he would sit me down and my Italian's pretty poor and English. His English wasn't as good either. Right. But we were able through our love of food to talk through this conversation where he explained the differences in the different salamis and in the Tuscany region. This is made in the Tuscan style. The passion and pride in the food being so local. It's how inspirational it was. It was awesome, man. It was yeah. the coolest thing.
0: I had a very interesting experience along those same lines moving from phoenix to asheville that kind of blew me away and phoenix at the markets and the nurseries will get three or four different kinds of tomatoes right there's this plant sale the western north carolina herb sale sells all kinds of plants you walk into this building that's two football fields large it's a barn and this was right after i arrived a year ago And I walked into one booth and they had 40 different kinds of tomatoes. 40. 40. Yeah, that's awesome, right? Yeah. Uh, It's mind-blowing. It it is mind-blowing. That's an interesting step that I took from Phoenix to Asheville. And then when we reflect on it from the eastern U.S. to, to Spain, that difference. And that kind of shows us how much farther we have to go. Absolutely,
1: and being able to travel around the country, like I, I'm blessed to do, it's like that here. When you go down to Louisiana, there's a very specific food, or when I visit my yeah. friends in Appalachia, it's very specific, and there is that pride in the local food that certainly does exist. But what I experienced overseas was it, that was the food system. That was how yes. it. That's just the way that it is. Yeah. So I would love to see if we could. Tune into these local pockets here in the United States and really build them up and create a platform for them to become the mainstream food of that area. That would be, that's at the end. I think this is the ultimate goal of all
0: the work that we're trying to do. Amen to that. And I'll say this publicly our food system is broken. The food manufacturing business, I'm not going to take that out, by the way, the food <laughs> manufacturing business in this country is broken it while on one hand it supplies meals for everybody every day on the other hand it's a very fragile system it could break down very quickly and it delivers food that is not good for us it is not healthy food and the messages that we're carrying the messages of our podcast to get people out in their yards is, in my opinion, the single most important thing we can be doing on the planet right now.
1: I dig it, man. I'm with you 100% on that, Greg, for sure. For sure. Getting people out there. And just like we saw, when people get into the garden, they don't go back in the house. They stay in the garden. Yeah, And yep. if that's what we need more of, for sure.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So your new book, Grow Great Vegetables by Timber Press. Give us a synopsis of it.
1: I'm I'm a little biased, but I absolutely love it. Perfect. Um, (laughs) Love it. So the concept of the book is we break the garden down month by month. Um, Uh So at any time of the year, if you come across this book, you can flip to whatever month it is and you will see the garden tasks based on your zone that you could be doing to be growing the greatest vegetables possible. So we break it down every activity throughout the entire year from January to December, everything that you need to do from sourcing your seeds to starting your plants to We walk you through how to build the trellises, all sorts of different stuff throughout the book. Uh, Yeah, it's really a comprehensive guide. And then the second half of the book, we talk about it from the point of view of the specific vegetables or fruits and vegetables, be it tomatoes or cabbages or whatever, and all the Mm -hmm. things that we need to do spacing and growing and all that sort of stuff. And then you get all of my recommendations for my favorite varieties of each type of thing. So that was probably my Mm -hmm. favorite part because I couldn't make the recommendations without growing
0: and eating all of them. So I had to do that. There you go. (laughs) Absolutely. So here's a question for you. In 1999, my buddy, Matt, sir, and I in phoenix put together a planting calendar actually he did a lot of the work and shared it with me it was a what to plant when and i've been giving it away for free it's a low desert planting calendar and i've been giving it away for free since 1999 and what i had to do three years ago i guess in retrospect it's not surprising but it was a little surprising we had to update the calendar yeah we had to. the the climate has changed in the gl- growing climate has changed enough in phoenix in the low desert that we had to readjust the things that were on that calendar to get them planted at the right time are you seeing that Very much, actually, very much in researching for the book, even here in
1: my home state of Michigan, but then even more so when we moved into writing about Indiana and Ohio or whatever it might be, as I researched the specifics of the zones and then on the internet, once something's on the internet, it's there forever, whether it's updated or not. So when you go to the government websites, some of that stuff's not up to date anymore, where the borders of the zones are, where things have shifted and changed. So it took a little bit of time to get the most updated information on a good planting schedule for each place, because it's definitely changed in the last 10 years, easy to say 10 years. And the trick is that I think it's going to continue to change, right? So the more people that we can get in the garden right now, understanding the patterns that they see out in the gardens. When I teach people about gardening, I often say that a date is just a recommendation, right? And it's not really so much about the date. It's more about, say, the soil temperature, right? And that's really what we want to look at. There are these types of things, learning how to identify what's happening in the garden when, not what somebody's telling you to do. Yeah, I have a friend, his name is Stephen McComber. He's a Mohawk elder. He lives up in Canada. And he always tells me, don't look at the dates. What you want to look at is what the signs of nature are. And one that always stuck Mm. with me all the time was, you don't plant your potatoes until the dandelions bloom. And I thought, well, that's quaint and interesting. What an oh, old thing. interesting. The dandelions won't bloom until the soil in that area reaches a certain temperature, which happens to be the right temperature for planting potatoes. Oh, nice. Yeah, this in- indigenous knowledge is incredible. And it makes yeah. sense because these folks have been growing on this land for millennia. They've really got it figured out and they don't need those dates. So we really tried to lean into that with the book as well to make sure that we are flexible enough to not just say it's hard and fast. This is the date you do things, but to learn how to observe your environment and then interact with it. And I think that's what a good gardener learns to do
0: over time. You may not know this. I've been studying permaculture for 32 years now. You've been Um, in the game a
1: long time. I know that.
0: I have. And when I discovered permaculture in 1991, for me, it was an eye-opener. And I said to myself, oh, my gosh, there's actually something that I can call the way that I think. Because from a very early age, back in the late 60s and early 70s, I had this way of thinking that was very different. And permaculture, number one, first thing you need to do is observe. And then you make a few changes and then you observe. And then so observation becomes the key piece for moving our lives forward, really.
1: Absolutely. That's, yeah, that's super smart, man. And I think that with our lives as well as in our gardens, like we're saying, that's the first step is to observe the situation and then adjust accordingly. Yeah. 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 I
0: dig it. Awesome. And. So let's go back to your podcast just a little bit. What's your favorite thing about your podcast? I know we already talked about it's fun. It's super fun.
1: I love, I do love sitting down with the guests and learning from everybody and and that's a good time. But something that I've really come to appreciate Is the feedback from our listeners, whether they're leaving us reviews on Apple or they email me or whatever it might be? um, We've got a little Facebook group that we put together. It's a community Mm -hmm. where people can come into and stuff, which is called Seeds and Weeds. It's on Facebook. The interaction with the listeners has been so much fun. When people tell me, oh, I never knew that before, or I've heard this on your show and now I'm trying it out and it's working for me, or that's so cool to see the impact of what we're doing when it's just me and the guest we're in a bubble we're doing our thing we're having a good time but when you can hear from the outside world that people are listening and responding and enjoying and learning from it
0: that's the coolest what's fun coming from that it's absolutely the coolest and the fun part coming from that is when i get a listener that calls emails tells me that i invite them to be my guest on the podcast Oh, I like that. I'm getting that's chills cool. right now. I have had multiple people on the podcast over the years that, that reached out to me and said, oh my gosh, Greg, I love what you're doing. And I learned a lot and I bought a homestead in Maricopa, Arizona. I said, really? Tell me a little bit about that. And he told me a little bit about it. And I said, you want to be my guest on the podcast? Oh and my he, gosh. Was, he was all in. He I'm was sure that in. he was, right? He's probably starstruck. <laughs> yeah. And- oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's that for me is why I'm doing what I'm doing. It's when I can make a difference like that for somebody. Yeah, absolutely.
1: When you see the difference that you've made and man, that it's all worth it because it's sure it's fun, but it's work, right? There's a lot of work that goes into making it happen. And so when you can see that there's an impact, a positive impact that you're making on the world, that is, yeah. it's very rewarding for sure. Yeah. Woohoo!
0: So where can, where can people find your podcast at?
1: They can easily find it at seedsandweedspodcast.com.
0: Perfect. And I'm sure you're on all the platforms.
1: All the things, Apple, Spotify, Google, all the things. We're on all of those things.
0: Nice. So yeah. I'm.
1: Hands off with that part of it. Full disclosure, my wife Heather, does most of the technical computer related things here at Small House Farm. So when you folks visit our websites or anything like that, that's all my wife Heather, she does all of those things. And I think she's pretty good at it.
0: Yay, Heather.
1: Yay, Heather, indeed. Uh, For sure. I always say she's the most patient woman on the planet because she's got to deal with me every (sighs) single day. (laughs) Nice.
0: So I'm gonna shift on you, and as a returning guest. I'd like for you to share a vivid childhood memory around food.
1: This is possibly the best question I've ever been asked. I've been on a lot of podcasts, Greg. Yeah. And this maybe is the best question ever. It is so thought provoking trying to think, not only did I get to go through memory lane, bouncing around through the years, remembering all these different things, but then trying to pick one that we were going to talk about today. (laughs) That's just amazing. And the one that I've decided This is a memory that when I was five years old, so quite a long time ago, we're not going to say exactly how long ago, but quite a while ago, when I was five years old, my grandmother took me to visit some of her friends in New York City. And it was a big, epic journey for me. And I remember, still remember the pictures of me on the airplane with my little Winnie the Pooh doll and stuff. And we went to New York City and we went to see the sights and this sort of thing. And we went to dinner in Chinatown. and We had gotten a whole spread
0: of food and a bowl of- And you're five years old at this point.
1: Five years old, five years okay. old. Okay. Uh, so I'm a little Ben, little bad, little guy. And the soup was egg drop soup. I don't remember that part, but what I remember in it was these very small shrimp in soup and i was shocked beyond belief like to the point that it's many years later and i remember this moment in time shrimp in the soup i'd never heard of anything like that it was so different than anything i'd ever seen at home Uh, Uh i did not know how to process this shrimp in this soup it was outrageous and at first i was mortified by it like who who would think to put shrimp in soup but then i tried it and it was delicious it was incredible and I loved it very much. And this moment has stuck with me because I come back to it over and over. I've even told my children now the same story, because I think that one of the best things that we can learn how to do is to expose ourselves to new foods and to new Mm. places and to new cultures. And that moment when I decided that even though shrimp and soup was the most unusual thing i had ever seen, I decided to try it and it was delicious. And that shaped my thinking for all the years that came after that that although something might be outside of what I consider normal, it doesn't mean it's bad and I should give it a try.
0: Wow. And that you can apply that not just to
1: food, but to life. To Yeah, absolutely. To all sorts of things in life. And it's really shaped in many ways, the person that I am today, how curious I am about going to new places or trying new foods or meeting new people or whatever it might be. Because even though I don't understand it, It doesn't mean it's bad. And it's probably actually really good once I expose myself to it. So I've used that story, like I said, on my kids to get them to try new foods. And they're always like, oh, dad, you're right. And we'll put that on the calendar. But it was really for me to think about all the epic food moments in my life. That one right there, the seeds that were planted on that day have had
0: an impact The ripples through my life. I couldn't even count them all. Wow. Awesome. And do you have a book to recommend for our listeners? I sure do.
1: As a matter of fact, on the plane, recently, I was reading this book. It's called A Desert Feast Celebrating Tucson's Culinary Heritage. And it's by Carolyn Neithammer. And it is an awesome book. And I bet you would love it very much if you haven't read
0: it, Greg. I haven't. And yes, I probably would because Tucson is one of those epic places in the world around local it's- food.
1: Absolutely. And that was one of the things that I loved about this book is it's hyper local to this particular place. The culture and the food and the gardens and the people are completely intertwined and very specific to this one area. And that's way cool. So that is my book recommendation, A Desert Feast. Nice. And a piece of advice for our listeners. You know what? I'm going to recycle what I said about the shrimp try new things get out there and try new things whether it's new foods that you've never tried before whether it's growing something new in your garden you haven't had a new way of cooking something you've grown a hundred times whatever it might be expose yourself to new things new foods new places
0: and new people i love it thank you so much and thanks for joining us on the show today bevin
1: greg thank you so much
0: for having me on the show it was an absolute <laughs> blast man oh my gosh and how can our listeners get a hold of you? Find your books. Let's, yeah. The easiest way to
1: find everything about me is smallhousefarm.com. It's got links to my books, to the seeds, to the podcast, to everything that we do, smallhousefarm.com. Nice. And what kind of seeds
0: do you have this time of year?
1: Ooh, we got lots of seeds. Right now we're doing a lot of fall crops that people are getting. So we've got different kinds of broccolis and brassicas and greens and that sort of thing. We've got winter wheat that people can get all sorts of different stuff, but it's never too early to stock up for next season either. So we've got tomatoes and flowers and herbs. We got all sorts
0: of goodies and we grow and harvest all of the seeds right here on our little farm. Oh, nice. Oh my gosh. We probably should have a conversation about that as well at some point in the future sign me up. That's cool. That's cool. Thank you. Thank you again, Bevan. And you can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash seeds and weeds.
1: We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the urban farm podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams.